Good afternoon. Um, I'm Chris Pollock. I'm chair of the marketing department, and uh, it is my honor to uh, introduce our panel in today's uh, ethics panel for the um, uh, Dale P. Jones Ethic Forum. Um, we uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Maria Hoy. Maria Hoy, uh, Dr. Hoy is a professor in the School of Advertising and Public Relations at the University of Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Hoy teaches research in advertising and society classes, conducts research, and has published extensively in the area of consumer privacy and ethical issues in social media. Uh, to her left, we have Spike Jones. Uh, Spike Jones is a Baylor graduate with degrees in uh, environmental studies and journalism. Uh, he has been a successful consultant and freelance and technical writer and is currently Senior Vice President uh, of the Digital Vision of Flashman Hillard, specializing in word-of-mouth initiatives. Uh, Spike's background includes business development uh, and contributing strategic development uh, for word-of-mouth and social media strategy uh, for companies including USAA, AT&T, General Motors, uh, Chevrolet, BMW, and Best Buy. Uh, to his left, we have John Moore, uh, who is also a Baylor graduate with a degree in what we now call film and digital media. Uh, his background includes a decade working deep inside the marketing departments at Starbucks and Whole Foods. Uh, today, John operates the, the brand autopsy uh, marketing practice, a consultancy uh, helping businesses focus on marketing with an authentic passion. Uh, to John's left is Pete Blackshaw. Pete Blackshaw is uh, the Executive Vice President for Strategic Services with NNM Site, which is a Nielsen McKinsey company. He is a recognized expert in interactive marketing and has worked with uh, many of the world's top brands and companies to develop cohesive uh, consumer-centered digital uh, programs and strategy. Uh, he is the author of Satisfied Customers Tell Three Friends, Angry Customers Tell 3,000, uh, writes a bi-weekly column in Advertising Age, uh, co-founded the Word of Marketing, uh, uh, Word of Mouth Marketing Association, and is the, uh, currently the chairman of the board uh, of the National Council of the Better Business Bureau. Uh, he is also, as of this, uh, at the, this moment, this afternoon, he is the um, uh, Fall Ben Williams Distinguished Speaker. Um, one of his greatest honors, I, I'm, I'm certain. Um, our moderator of today's panel is uh, Dr. Mitch Newbert. Uh, Dr. Newbert is the Siobhan Chair of Christian Ethics here at uh, Baylor University in the Hankamer School of Business. So if you would, please uh, give a warm Baylor welcome to our panel, and we'll get started. Thanks, Chris. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about the format. I want to get you warmed up because you're going to be a big part of it. Uh, we want to have a lot of audience participation. So how we, what we're going to do is we're going to start off... Uh, Dr. Hoyle will start us off. She'll share, kind of set the table with some key issues that she's been doing work on. And then after she sets the table, then each of the uh, panelists will uh, talk about maybe their particular expert expertise or interests, that, and it might coincide with that, or it might be something different. But after we get all those different uh, opinions and uh, comments on the table, then I'm going to look to the audience to have some questions about the content that they've provided so far. I have a couple questions I could ask, but really I'd like to see folks come and ask a question and if you're one of the first ones to do so uh, you go ahead and press the bottom of that mic and get it live for us and then ask your question and and we'll go from there so why don't we start out here Dr. Hoy you can um, launch us off thanks mic on be good thanks 
Uh, we all like customization. I walk into Subway and the person behind the counter says, what can I get for you? And I say, well, I'd like a beef and cheese sandwich and I'd like pepper jack cheese in Southwest Chipotle sauce and I would like, you know, veggies because I'm really interested in health things and, oh, banana peppers, lots of banana peppers. And I get the sandwich just the way I want. But let's say I walk into a Subway and as soon as I walk in, the person behind the counter says, would you like a beef and cheese sandwich? And I think, well, that's an interesting coincidence. I was going to order that. But they still let me go ahead and tell what I want on my sandwich. But let's say that I walk into a Subway sandwich shop and they say, guess what? We have your sandwich for you. Here's a sandwich you might be interested in. Beef and, beef and cheese, pepper jack cheese, the sauce that you like, all of the vegetables that you like, and that special, you know, double portion of banana peppers. It's gone from being a bit coincidental to maybe just a tad creepy that they know me that well, and I'm not sure how they know me that well. What if they also said, beyond that, we also know that you're married, have kids, you live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and you have a cat. Didn't need to know it to serve you, but we also know that about you. How do people respond, especially when they're not quite sure how you learned that about me in order to give me um, a sandwich? And I do appreciate the sandwich that you offered, but I'm just curious how you got that about me. So what I'm going to lead with today, as we talk about marketing to the eye, the very individualization that we want and we want to offer our customers and that we kind of have grown to expect as consumers, is the whole idea of behavioral advertising or targeting. And just to refresh, to make sure we all understand what the idea here is, usually it involves tracking people as they uh, search online, web pages as visited, and content that you've seen, with the intention of giving you a very tailored a very tailored message, very tailored advertising, hopefully that you won't be annoyed by the advertising because you're actually getting messages that you're interested in. One of the concerns, especially from the FTC, is that it's often taking place without users' awareness. Even though people may have a general understanding of I'm getting ads I'm interested in, most of the time people don't exactly know how and why they're getting it, and that is a real concern from, to the Federal Trade Commission. In the past couple of years, we have seen it expand into social networks, specifically into Facebook with the Beacon program. That, uh, an attempt was made to launch that back in the fall of, uh, uh, of 07. And so one of the connections as it went into the social networks is that usually people put up a social network profile so they could connect with others. They weren't necessarily wanting other people to use that data beyond just their friends and what they had allowed it to, to go into. And so just some examples of things that have caused questions, and maybe you've seen it, employers looking at it, checking, out, checking you out before they hire you or in, uh, take you on for an in, internship, or lawyers checking out prospective witnesses or the, the, the people involved, uh, professors looking for potential cheating, uh, insurance companies evaluating health benefits, local campus police maybe looking for um, illegal behavior, and of course sending you ads that seem to know you better than yourself. In fact, about a month ago when I was trying to come here, I was looking at flights and you know, looking on Travelocity before I then went and booked through the, my university's travel agency. Well, a couple of weeks ago, wouldn't you know it, that creepy little Travelocity gnome showed up on Drudge when I was looking around. And even though I know how this works and I did not book through Travelocity, they were still following around and it was unnerving me just a little bit uh, to say that I've been tracked. A couple of years ago, through my research class, right after the Beacon controversy uh, came up, the whole idea of what, are you, what is everybody posting on Facebook and is it appropriate, uh, how are different people using it, is advertising are using it, potential employers are using it. And so through my research class, we collectively ran this study and it was very much a learning experience for me to have the students as the Facebook experts and me as the research and kind of public policy perspective. So one of the portions of the 
survey that we did asked about the ethical appropriateness of how people were using social network. Usually when we talk about online privacy, the context is how concerned are you? Are you concerned? I'm concerned. Are you concerned? How concerned are we all? Or they will say, what will you give up? You want free content, it's going to cost you. Well, how much? Or if you don't want advertising, you're going to have to you know, pay, pay for the content. So that it's always presented as a trade-off that you have to make, a rational trade-off with the idea most people will give up some privacy to get very tailored messages to them. But I asked the question, also asked the concern question, but I also asked the question that I had not seen asked specifically before, and that is the idea of ethical appropriateness. So these are some of the measures that we had on there. Clearly, you know, it skewed young. It was... Um, my students launched on their Facebook profile. We set up a, a group page and sent everybody a link that took them to SurveyMonkey for them to fill out. So this does skew younger and, um, of course, has a lot of college students. So you can see that clearly all students think it's totally inappropriate for faculty members to use um, Facebook in order or profile information to do grades. But I'd like you to look down just a little bit more in the yellow highlighted area where we talk about advertisers, and that one is at 62.1 percent. Advertisers use profile information to send someone ads targeted to his or her interest. Now, most of the surveys out there say people are kind of okay with that. They don't like annoying ads, so for the most part, as long as you're seeing ads that relate to things you're interested in, you're okay with it. You're, you know, especially if it's you know from companies that you've heard about before, you're pretty okay with it. However, this question doesn't ask if you're concerned. It doesn't ask about a trade-off you're willing to make. It asks simply, do you think it's ethically appropriate? Which is a very different conversation than asking how concerned, because the FTC is looking at that. But we're not really dealing with, well, do people think that it's ethically appropriate? I might also go down, and I found this was interesting. I don't do a whole lot of work in the nonprofit sector, but if you go down there, so you've got advertisers using your profile information to send you um, targeted ads. What happens if nonprofit organizations, this is about the fourth from the bottom, use profile information as a way to identify prospective donors or volunteers. Notice the drop-off there. Someone is still using your profile information, but they're not using it to try to sell you something or to give you, you know, target information. They're looking at you and saying, is this the kind of person that might make uh, a good volunteer or a prospective donor for us? And so I think that's kind of curious that in the context of nonprofit, the ethical um, inappropriateness really drops, and perhaps there's more trust involved with some of the nonprofits. That, that would be an interesting future study, shall we say. So where are we now? We know that the FTC is really looking at this. Several speakers have uh, talked about it and continue to talk about it. Where are we now? About a month ago, a group of uh, trade associations, advertising trade associations, and they've been working on this for about a year in response to the FTC saying, if you all do not self-regulate we are going to step in and do something. So they've been studying this and doing some research. So one of the things that they have come up with now, and it should be on hopefully websites by the end of the year, is what's called the advertising option icon here. It was first a circle when they first tested it, now it's gone to the triangle, kind of reminiscent of the recycle shape. They're thinking that maybe consumers will, will play off this. And so what's supposed to happen is that this icon is going to be near ads or on web pages that have been sent to you based on your browsing history after tracking you. And what you can do is you can click that icon and it will take you to an another web page that will explain exactly how they got your information and what they're doing it. Now, what also is supposed to be open is that companies that will sign on to this, there is a way that consumers can opt out. It's basically like a do not call or a do not track. And so what you can do is you can either selectively say, I do not want messages from these advertisers, or you can say generically, I do not want to be tracked at all. 
So there's some, um, there's a lot of variety there. And so the current response by FTC commissioners is that this really looks good, but we have to see it in action, look at click-through rates, and then look at what actually happens. Are people opting out or are they okay once they really understand it? And there's some other studies out there that say once people really understand what behavioral advertising is, they don't like it if they really understand it. So there's a lot of mixed data out there in the marketplace that we're dealing with. Another thing that's supposed to happen is more consumer education so people really understand. So what happens next? And this quote came from um, uh, Representative Joe Barton, Republican from Texas, the morning after the election. What happens with the change of power from a couple of weeks ago? Well, we see that whether you're talking about privacy or kids, we've got you know, bipartisan support. So this quote here, I want the internet economy to prosper, but it can't unless the people's right to privacy means that a right to hear, more than a right to hear excuses after the damage is done. I wonder who they might be talking about, who, whose name is always in the paper, in the press, for um, privacy violations. Um, in the next Congress, the Energy and Commerce Committee and our subcommittees are going to put internet privacy policies in the crosshairs. So we're, we're seeing that this is going to continue to be a very important topic. Now related to that, but slightly has some different issues for me, is that this semester in my research class, I've got uh, two sections of it and eight groups going on, we have been looking at online social gaming. And I don't know if I should ask who does Farmville or who's doing Farmville or Mafia Wars right now, even as I speak. Don't ask, don't tell, right? We're not going to divulge that information. <laughs> but um, we're, we're looking at social gaming as the next killer app. And so what we have is just, a, you know, this explosion since Facebook opened apps to, to games back in mid-2007. So we have 58... 56 million people are playing social network games, and we're looking at that to really explode with smartphones, iPods, and other portable devices that let us game on the go. And what's interesting to me is looking at children, minors, having access to some of these games, and we'll see in just a second a couple of issues of, with that. We see the growth really among 11 to 14-year-olds getting smartphones, and 14% uh, of children have a smartphone. And it's, unless, I'm assuming there may be an app for that, but it's harder for parents to be aware of what exactly their child is doing online through the phone versus having uh, software on the uh, computer. I'm assuming there's going to be technology to assist with that. Just to show what are kids doing, well, I'm sure this is no surprise how they spent their summer vacation playing video games online and being on social networks. So wherever there is an audience, we're going to be looking at them as someone that we can communicate with and sell. So now, what has been happening in the area of social gaming the past uh, what, six or so months is looking at how can we monetize this? How can we have access to this entire audience? Especially when you have free-to-play games on Facebook is the main context. So we're looking at in-game product placement, nothing new. Been putting brands and video games to enhance the realism for a long time. And so one of the examples here is called retail therapy. Maybe some of the, the women in the audience can really identify with this. But what you can do is you can build a, a shop and you can add name brand, um, couturier type of brands in, into your store and try to you know make it successful. We also have the idea of branded virtual goods. So you're buying goods within the game that are branded also. And then we have branded games where we used to call it advert games. Back in those days, we thought of advert games as you played one-on-one -on -one with the characters that represented brands. Now, this is the context of social advert gaming. So I'm not only dealing, interacting with the brand, but I'm doing it in a social context. And so there's been some brands that have been exploring that in the past few months. So what are some of the issues? And let me say, 
some of these I'm not really seeing, and, and you may have others, or you all, because you're part of the gaming audience, you may say, that's wrong, that's something you should think about. But here's some things that I was surprised at to learn as I began working on this. First of all, Facebook games are not rated, which I guess if you really play Facebook games, you know that, but I'm used to seeing where you have video games that you can go in, especially if you're a parent, and you know that it's rated T for teen, and for mature, um, you know, rate, rate, rating pending, etc. So the fact that these games aren't rated could be an issue for parents wanting to really know what their kids are doing online, especially when you see some of the other games that are coming out and, and young people going online, and, and even children, even the under 12. So I like my, my next one, you know, hey kids, forget the farm, let's go play Mafia Wars. And especially, and then you know, Texas holding with that, that inside straight. So for children and teens, you may have content that if it were presented in an R-rated movie, they may not have access to. But when it's on a Facebook game and it's unrated, it's there and the parents may not be totally aware of what the issues are. And then finally, with this topic here of some of the issues, uh, in the past uh, month, um, we have that several user IDs from top 10 Facebook applications were sent to advertisers and internet tracking companies. And so guess what some of the top 10 apps are? They include Frontierville, Mafia Wars, Cafe World. So those games there sent user ID, which allowed apparently a lot more personal information to be uh, collected and sent on to advertising companies when that was not supposed to happen. But with Farmville, it wasn't just you, the gamer's information. It was also your friend's information that was being sent. And so they, they caught, this is the Wall Street Journal investigation, and they, they, Facebook responded very quickly uh, to their credit. But it's just kind of like, okay, now it's not just the issue of these games are not rated and what's the ethics that might be involved there and how do we as marketers choose appropriate places to, to do our products. But we're, um, we're also now seeing privacy issues. Of course, anytime Facebook is involved, usually there's something privacy-related going to come out soon. Now, I'm guessing... Most of the people in this audience will recognize these next images, but for us older folk, um, we're looking at what Mafia Wars might, might look like. So I'm not saying it's inappropriate for anyone, but certainly a parent might want to know what the content is if, if you go and look at it. And uh, some of the Facebook pages for these will actually say, you know, we can't control what other people are saying online. And there just might be, there just might be profanity in play some of these games, so you might want to be aware of that. But, and I do have students who will give me screen captures of their gameplay, but just what's out there for Mafia Wars. Illegal activity, not that, you know, role-playing, being a bank robber is, is not something that would be inappropriate, but once again, is it for children, and do the parents know what's going on in the content? And Texas Hold'em gambling, something that would be illegal for a child to truly do, but yet, you know, you could, you could play it online. It's supposed to be going to the Android. And this was an example of a branded game. It was only up... Uh, as a Facebook game for a little bit. Um, uh, so this was Jim Bean Black, and so you could go on and play. The target market was men 30 to 34, okay, who were having um, uh, regrets, shall they say, of their earlier times. And so you could go on this, this game and, and post some of your regrets, and they were supposed to screen it. But what the issues were, you know, the age appropriateness, which is kind of the ethical issue, but for the alcohol issue, having to do verification that you're of legal age. Well, how do you do verification online? I'm sure you all know. You go to any kind of these websites, you type in your birth date. And if you tell them you're of a certain age, you know, you're free to play. And of course, I think most 10-year-olds know how to backdate a, a little bit to look uh, the correct age. Finally, this last one is, is from a couple of days ago. And this will be my, my last uh, slide here. But a new game is coming out uh, to Facebook, um, 
Dragon Age Legends, which I had never heard of before, but it sounded intriguing. It's going to be a free-to-play game. So I went and looked online, and the Dragon Age franchise, the, the first one out was rated M for Mature. Okay. Well, what's supposed to happen on the Facebook game is that players can unlock, uh, earn exclusive unlocks for the Dragon Age 2, which currently has rate pending. So I asked some of my gamer guys, what does this mean? And they say, it will at least be an informature because a sequel will never go back to a lower rating. And then one of the guys went on a forum and said, I've seen the discussion, but it's got to be rated M. Which is interesting because you could have a team playing this game, earning these you know, exclusive unlocks, and then uh, pursuing an M-rated game. We can deal with that where you know the parents might be involved, but over the past um, 10 years, the, the FTC has also been he held several um, investigations looking at marketing violent entertainment to children, whether it was R-rated, you know, kids getting into R-rated movies or buying M games or buying a parent advisory type um, CDs. So, you know, supposed to provide a deep, sophisticated experience, which I have no idea what that means. But that is kind of the latest and greatest, and, and currently the FTC has not voiced anything about it, which says, well, do we wait till there's some regulation parameters, or do we you know, start to have this discussion now as to what might be appropriate? So thank you. All right, great. So Maria just sets the table with some things she's doing research on. Maybe, uh, Spike, you have some ideas of the things you're wrestling with as a marketer out in the field? So first of all, the gaming discussion reminds me that I have Call of Duty Black Ops waiting for me at home. Were you, were you there? <laughs> anybody else? Has anybody played that yet? Played it all? Have you beat it yet? Don't tell me what happens. I'm looking forward to that. And also, talking about the targeting ads, targeted ads that you go on, it really it cracks me up because if you go sometimes like on the fail blog, you'll see like a, an article about childhood obesity, and then there's an ad for McDonald's mm -hmm. on the side. So it cracks me up that they haven't figured that out yet. Um, and, and still it's an imperfection uh, or an imperfect model, but I think people are starting to get smarter, especially marketers are starting to get smarter um, when it comes to those targeting, which is scary, like you said. Um, my name is Spike Jones. If you're coming to see the uh, director, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, I do get a lot of friend requests. Spike Jones, the director? Yeah. Well, the wild things are? Yeah, okay, I'm All talking right. to you. Anyway, I get a lot of friend requests on Facebook from actors, <laughs> and I have to tell them, send me your script. But anyway, <laughs> is that unethical? No. Um, they need to know how to spell his last name. Anyway. It was a Z. It was a Z. Uh, my background is in, uh, in branding. Uh, like, a, like they said, I was a journalism major and environmental studies major here, so basically a a tree-hugging hippie writer uh, from Baylor University, believe it or not. Um, but my background really is in branding and trying to figure out how brands work. And now I'm in PR, which is more reputation. Um, and really, in the past couple years, or past six or seven years, I've been playing in the word-of-mouth game. And, and Pete talked a lot about it today, which, is, which was fantastic. And so really my job, I sit in a digital section of an agency, so it's my job to figure out how to marry online and offline and how to bridge that gap with reputation and brand. So... What percentage of word-of-mouth recommendations do you think happen offline? Anybody? Any guesses? Offline recommendations. Anybody else? I'd say somewhere like 70. 93% of word-of-mouth recommendations happen offline. Now, it's from the Keller Fake Kids, right? Well, we'll talk about that. Anyway, it's big. It's a big number. And so brands are starting to realize that, yes, while we need to have a presence on social media and reach our customers there because our message can spread very quickly there, we also need to have be credible in that offline space. Now, how do we do that? 
Well, we're seeing more and more companies start reaching out to people that are passionate about their brands, are passionate about the, their industry, and engage them. Sometimes on a one-to-one basis, sometimes it's a cattle call. Come sign up. Send us your stories. Um, and they're trying to figure out how they can use those things to their advantage. But while this space is still very new, we're seeing a lot of companies still stumble and fall. Um, while this is not a new example, um, our good friends at Walmart, they're not a client of mine, um, they did something a while back uh, where uh, a, an online uh, community was formed to where people that are just big fans of Walmart got together and formed this community. I think it was called People of Walmart. And, uh, and went on there and said, Walmart is the best. It's the greatest. I love Walmart. Don't you all want Walmart? Come talk about Walmart. Guess who created it? Walmart. Walmart's PR agency created it. All right? They ran the whole thing. They, they staffed it and they posted. Is that ethical? Not so much. Not so much. All right? But where do we draw that line? All right? And then now, these days, too, there's this. This is beautiful. I love this story. Anybody here watch Jersey Shore? Jersey Shore? Okay. I don't watch TV anymore because of uh, TV shows like Jersey Shore. But I've heard about it. All right? And now we're seeing companies go out and be preemptive about their marketing. So Snooky, right? Snooky? She was carrying around a, a particular purse. I, don't, I think I'm just going to say it was like Chanel. All right? If you're Chanel, do you want Snooky carrying around your purse? Yeah. Really? Do you want to be associated with that brand image? I haven't watched TV. Either. No, no worries. No worries. But <laughs> Chanel did not want to be, or whoever the bags she was carrying, they did not want to be associated with her. So guess what they did? They sent her a whole bunch of Louis Vuitton bags. <laughs> and she started carrying those around. All right? Is that ethical? It's clever. All right? It's, it is brilliant. But, so where, but where do we draw the lines, all right? What is ethical to a Baylor student might not be as ethical as to, I don't know, a Texas A&M student, right? All right? We all, have our different, we all have our different standards, but we all have to live by ethical standards that society or especially our peer groups set for us. Um, we're seeing the government start to get involved, especially in disclosure. Whenever a company will send you something um, for free and say, please, God, talk about it on the Twitter nets or the internets or wherever the blogosphere or whatever, you know, whatever the shiny new toy is at this point, um, we're seeing that now people are going to have to disclose. Okay, they sent this to me for free. There's other organizations out there that say, come, come here, sign up, we'll send you free stuff, and we'll also tell you how to talk about it to your friends. To some, that's perfectly fine, and there are very successful business models that are being built on that. To others, it is not ethical, all right? So... I think there's a lot, of, um, a lot of questions that still need to be asked. I mean, this space is very young. The social media space is even younger than the word of mouth marketing space. But again, how are we going to ask those questions and how do we ask them for ourselves? We have companies that have huge, huge, uh, good reputations because they draw lines in the sand and they say, this is what we stand for and this is what we stand against. Every time I freaking want to go to Chick-fil-A, it's usually on a Sunday, all right? <laughs> But they aren't open on Sundays because they put a line in the sand and say, this is what we believe. We will not be open on Sundays because of our values that we have, um, which is fascinating to me. You know? And so because of that, they attract like-minded people. All right? And those like-minded people want to associate themselves with that brand. Everybody wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. right? It's, it's the we mentality. Whether it's religion, um, Sports teams. I used to work with a guy uh, when I was lived in South Carolina. He didn't go to Clemson University, right? But he would come in during football season and come in on Monday and go, "Man, you see the game? We sucked, or we were awesome." What's the word that he uses? We. All right. Didn't go to school there. Doesn't play on the football team, but he uses the word we. And so, 
brands are recognizing that mentality and saying, okay, well, how can we foster this idea of we, but how can we do it in an ethical way? And we'll talk about that more, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. John, go ahead. Okay, so I'm John Moore, and my particular background is a little bit different because I'm not as hip to what all is going on within social media. My background is basically brand retail marketing. What that basically means is that my job back at Starbucks was to design programs, some advertising, marketing-type programs that would hopefully drive traffic in the store so that you drive more people in. Once they're in the store, hopefully they're going to be buying the latest promotional product because that one usually carries a higher price. And so my job was to drive traffic and drive sales. But the main driver to make that happen wasn't traditional marketing. It was playing off a little bit what Pete talked about in his talk today, customer service. But really, Starbucks was the whole customer experience. And knowing that they didn't have the dollars to spend on traditional advertising. Rather, they spent their dollars to make a better customer experience. Better from the standpoint that it was more unique. So unique that people talked about it. So unique that when people talked about it, they said, that's my Starbucks, or have you been here? Let me explain how you go about ordering a beverage at Starbucks. There was so much there to talk about, which gets you into word of mouth. That was all done offline. As Spike talked about, one of the challenges that he sees is how to blend the offline with the online. Nowadays, with us being so connected through so many gadgets, the opportunities for brands, and this is the challenge, is to what have they done as far as creating an offline personal experience, moving that online. The challenge comes in, as Spike alluded to a little bit, is that we live in this what gets measured gets manufactured world. Once you measure success as in getting people talking, there are so many ways you can contrive or be contriving to get people to talk. You can pay people to shill. You can pay them to shill offline. You can pay them to shill online. FTC has come out and said that what has to happen here is that if indeed someone receives material compensation, that is complimentary product or special privileges from a brand, it's the responsibility is there for them to disclose that they have some connection to a company. This all brings up the major point that comes into, into word of mouth and keeping it a good form of communicating between people about brands, movies, things they love. The key point is this issue of credibility and maintaining and establishing credibility. Since we do live in this what gets measured gets manufactured world, credibility is what's at stake. So when the issue of disclosure comes out, that is all about trying to ensure there's some credibility of disclosing some sort of your past or some sort of your connection to a brand or to a product so that we could better understand the backstory behind why someone on Twitter is talking about a handbag or why someone on a blog is talking about how great this laptop is. If you knew that they were given a complimentary laptop, don't you want to know that? If you knew the person on Twitter was talking about, hey, get 20% off if you sign up at so-and-so place, don't you want to know that they were given a special deal? 
because you understand the backstory and thus their word of mouth, both online and offline, you can judge the credibility of that. And I think from a brand's perspective, that's one of the most challenging pieces, is making sure that the conversations people have, both online as well as offline, remain credible. And it's the responsibility of brands to manage their programs, if indeed they're going online, reaching influential folks that they believe will spread the world. It's up to brands to better manage those relationships to influentials, making sure that if indeed they contact them and have them as part of a program, that they bake into the program this concept of disclosure as to letting folks know there is a relationship because once that's there, that helps with maintaining the credibility. Once credibility is maintained, word of mouth can remain the most powerful form of marketing any brand, any company could ever hope for. All right, now Pete, uh, there's only a, friendly, a few friendly faces here at the luncheon, so you can, you can feel free to see, take from your luncheon conversation just your hot buttons on the things you're dealing with or you think are uh, relevant. Well, I'll try to respond to all three comments. By the way, Spike, I'd love to uh, do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other Spike. Great. Thanks, man. I get that one, too. Um, first, I just have to uh, dignify what uh, John just said. I mean, we are we're at a real crossroads in marketing. We have uh, embraced, may bear hug, maybe body block this concept of word of mouth, um, We've seen the numbers that it's the most impactful form of marketing, but in a world where everyone is doing it, the inevitable question arises, who can we really trust? And what's real? What's the shill? And there's a lot of congestion out there. And so, as I articulated in my um, speech at lunchtime, you know, we may have to really work hard to overcompensate not just because the FTC, the FTC is saying we're going to slap you in the hand if you don't do it, but because we want to build a win-win marketplace, um, a real win-win marketplace between you know, consumers and brands. And the potential is absolutely enormous. If you think about like what consumers can contribute to the process, it's unprecedented. I think about your experience with Starbucks, where you've got this incredible crowdsourcing, where suddenly this age of consumer expression is bringing new feedback into the process. Um, which, as I learned at, at Procter & Gamble, is critical. You can just crack the code on getting the consumers to, uh, to teach you about where the brand needs to go. That's incredible value. So we need to think about how do we maintain trust in a way that we extract full value from um, you know, consumers. And things like disclosure are really important, um, but also it's really, really hard. Because the challenge with disclosures, I mentioned earlier about tweeting, um, most of the time, you know, in 140 characters, you can only disclose so much. <laughs> Again, you think about the pharma ads in People Magazine with like five pages of fine print. That's essentially disclosure. And, you know, how the heck do you do that in a Twitter environment? I have no idea. But we need to think about it because uh, that's what we owe the consumer. Now, in the earlier comments about privacy, you know, privacy is also really complicated uh, because you've got one generation that's almost um, sharing to the extreme. I mean, everything, to some extent, sharing is currency. Uh, we want our privacy to be discovered because that's this form of, this curious form of validation. But it has consequences in a world where the web leaves a digital trail and 
in a world where there are a lot of scumbags that don't act well, uh, on ethical standards and may take advantage of that data. So we really have to figure out how that uh, plays out. In my capacity uh, working with the National Advertising Review Council and the Better Business Bureau, we've been at the forefront of trying to get ahead of the behavioral advertising issue. Um, so the issues that you described with the, um, you know, the Better Advertising Seal, we've been, that, that's a program that we've been administering. And you know, what we're trying to do is figure out how do you kind of give some control back to the consumer? How do you tell them what's, you know, not say we don't believe in the inherent targeting ability of, of online advertising. I do think there's real value there, but how do you provide a greater measure of transparency about who's behind it? And if you do want to opt out, you know, making that a little bit um, you know, more obvious. And there are, if you go to a site called better, betteradvertising.com, you can download this, um, this widget that um, if you put it on your desktop, anytime you visit a site, even if you visit Nielsen, um, it'll tell you, you know, not the cookies and all the little contraptions that are created to kind of um, to follow your behavior. And it's a little bit humbling. In some cases, you may say, I don't really care, but it's good to know. And every once in a while, you go to some sites where there'll be like 12 different buttons show up. It's like, my gosh, everyone's got a piece of this site. Um, but again, you know, there's 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 there's. Uh, we're, we're going to see more um, efforts to really give consumers a greater sense of control. Um, I also really agree with the, I think you raised, I hadn't really thought about it, that uh, some of those sites that are just kind of exploding are, um, you know, don't really have any type of uh, ratings. As a parent of three kids, yeah, boy, I'm definitely concerned about Mafia Wars, and I wonder how that may play out. But, you know, one of our challenges is that all these new platforms emerge, you know, ratings, rating systems haven't really caught up with the traffic or the audience, and that's another area where I think you know marketers can be really um, you know proactive, kind of get ahead of the issue. Because at some point there will be someone in Congress or the Senate who sort of says you know we'll take control over the issue, and oftentimes that makes things even more complicated. So um, I'll kind of stop right there and pick up with the conversation flow in a minute. Okay. All right. So now. Uh yeah, what we're going to do here is, is uh, we've got some mics, and I know it's a little intimidating. We've got your friends here in the audience, but we've got mics here on, on each side of the uh, auditorium, and I would like to have a couple folks maybe on each side. Uh, if you've got a question, start to line up there. I'll launch another question while we're doing it, and then we're going we're gonna to wait on you. Okay, so we've got one possibly, but we're gonna, I'm going to ask a question and get in front of the mic there so we can all hear you. So... And if you have it before I launch my question, you can even go. I'm, I'm willing to do that. We've got one there. You want to go ahead? Ask your question? Sure. Um, I think it's already on. Um, my question relates to um, how each of you decide to evaluate an issue once you're faced with a dilemma. I'm a um, professor over in the journalism department. Um, my name is Marlene Neal. And so my question is, uh, when you're faced with a dilemma as a marketer, advertiser, or public relations practitioner, what kind of approaches would each of you use to evaluate whether or not it's the right action? Well, I'll go ahead and go first. Um, because I'm in front of a Christian audience or people that espouse to an evangelical perspective if you attend Baylor, I would say that for me, um, truth is important. And to um, do take the perspective of what are the implications from the other person. Now, I, I think perhaps my personality is such that I'm able to, to see a variety of perspectives. So I think it, that, that part of my paradigm, my value system, if you will, is influenced by my my Christian perspective, and so I, I do use that. I, I don't necessarily say that when I'm you know 
doing my research or where I'm teaching, but it is something that is, is, it is the root of who I am. And to play off of that, it is yeah. some of the, the basic personal foundations as to how to behave in, in society. And that is the idea, those are the ideals of don't lie, don't cheat, and don't steal. Businesses should follow exactly what we try to do in our personal lives. There shouldn't be any type of a difference. Be truthful, be respectful, be transparent. Now, to get to your question though, is what type of filter do you do I use? To me, it goes down to a value of a company. And if indeed, if a company has a value such as, go to Starbucks. They have always for years supported the fact of respect and dignity is a part of the foundation. So they want to make their decision based upon their mission, which includes, of course, to be a profitable company, but in doing that, to be respectful of people and to show dignity. To play off of that, if you begin to question some activity, thinking, is this right? It's probably wrong. I, I agree. I mean, it comes down to, you know, you join a company, hopefully you join a company based on a lot of things, but one of the most, mo main things is their values that they have. So you probably have an understanding that those people are think the same in most cases. I'll, my previous agency, I'll, I'll, there's two examples that I'll use. Um, whenever we would work on a political uh, campaign, half the company wouldn't work on it because they didn't believe in that side of the story. So they didn't work on it. And, they were, and, they then, and what the company said, that's fine. Also, we had a huge opportunity with Kraft but we also worked on the South Carolina anti teen anti-tobacco program. Who owns Kraft? R.J. Reynolds. All right. So we had and we, we had to turn it down, and that hurt because it's hard to serve two masters, ethics or money. You know, sometimes you got to choose. You, I mean, you got to choose one or the other. You can't serve both. And so it really hurt for a small company to pass up a huge opportunity like that. But in the end, it's the right thing to do. And when you look at companies that you respect on a personal level, you respect them, again, because they have drawn that line in the sand. And while it is not always easy to stick to, you know, you, that, that line is there for a reason, right? Is this on? Yeah. I wanted to say uh, thanks for stopping by. This has been very, very interesting on all the, the concerns with social media and ethics. And... Um, just based on uh, Professor Hoy's study where she found that when people knew that their information was being given to uh, people that they didn't know or companies they didn't want it to go to, they were totally turned off. How would a business essentially mitigate that turn-off effect when they're, they're making a disclosure, making, disclosing where they're advertising or why, who they're giving, their, who's advertising for them? Let me make a clarification just a minute. The, that was not my study, but a very recent one. It was a January 2010 study that was trying to look at the trade-offs and what they had found, and I've got to look at my notes to see the exact company that, that put out this study, was that once they fully educated people, people were less, in, less likely, less interested. But the way that the marketers looked at it was that within the people who did go ahead and follow through, they are really great prospects for us. So that's how this company actually um, interpreted the data. But I do want to clarify that. I was giving homage to another study, but not that was not mine. So question here, who has and who uses a credit card? Practically every one of us. Okay. Credit cards are notorious for, of course, using your purchase data. The data that they have is 
prior to the web becoming so hot and so now. Credit card data, companies sell that. I know that I have bought lists off of credit card companies to target customers because I know exactly where they bought goods from so I can get something more targeted. On that end, who here has a loyalty card for HEB or something like that? They know everything you purchase. They sell that data in many instances to other companies. You might not have thought about that, but that's why when you go to the when you go and you purchase things, many times they'll print off a coupon for a tailored coupon that they think better matches what your purchasing habits have been. So my point being is that it's always been there. We just haven't thought to ask about it until now we're starting to really question things. But that does open up opportunities for businesses to be transparent on this yeah. and saying, we are making a pledge. Your data that you share with, with us. And I'm saying this is an opportunity. I don't know if someone's doing this. For them to come out and clearly say, our proposition is that we will never, ever, ever use your data in ways that it's being used, such as blank, blank, blank. So I think it opens up opportunities, but this is activity that has happened pre-social media, pre-online opportunities. It's just that, yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really fair point. We've been doing this for years, but, um, you know, there is just a volatility with online. It's been around for a while, but we're still, you know, every time we blink, there's another platform that unfolds, and it seems like the new ones always have a heightened you know, level of scrutiny as we've seen with Facebook. So I certainly sympathize and empathize with the consumer, of which I'm one, with the, you know, where is this going, how bad could it get, and, um, boy, disclose like crazy. Um, you know, and I think there probably are some opportunities, even with the companies that you described, to potentially do an even better job. And I, I think things are going to get really interesting when the HEBs or the grocery stores actually open up their databases to consumers. They actually arguably can create massive amounts of value. I think about if I could only just easily go into my shop with card data and just be reminded of what I purchased before, they'd probably make more money off of me if I could, you know, download it to my app and just, you know, auto-purchase. So there may be, you know, it's interesting, there may be opportunities to almost turn this fear of privacy into a real opportunity with the consumer, but the current paradigm is you know, take the data, outsource it to, you know, use it yourself, outsource it to others, but you wonder whether in a world of consumer control there might be kind of a different model that emerges. And I guess I'm kind of seeding that among the potential entrepreneurs out there that are probably wondering, okay, is there are some cool business opportunities where I could maybe take this fear of privacy and turn it into an opportunity? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a quick uh, note here. So some of you have been heading for that have headed for the exits, the folks I'm speaking to haven't, so you're here. But um, as a kind of procedural deal here, the, uh, if you're trying to get credit for this, uh, we're not going to, they're, they're time stamped out there, so you're going to get credit if you stay uh, instead of if you exit it. I think we've got a great uh, panel here. I'd like to hear some more questions from the audience. Thank, thank you for that. But um, let's, uh, if you, we've got another one coming up. Go ahead. Posting the Facebook, everybody is still here. Captive yeah, audience. Right? That changes everything. Tag everyone. <laughs> That's right. Thanks again, guys, for coming. It's been uh, real informative. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm a senior music entertainment marketing major. And um, I just have a quick question. Uh, where do we draw the line between where we go and regulate and let the FTC and other organizations regulate us, or do we go ahead and educate the consumer? 
Because I know, at least from working on internet sites and doing things, I've done some of the things you're always uh, talking about, about promoting products for money and things like that and being promoters for it. Um, even when you do disclose things, like if you, look at, if you go on iTunes and look at the disclosure, it's about 15 pages long. I could probably say 99% of people don't read that. So even when you do disclose it and you probably do those surveys, people are still going to be upset whether they were told or not. So where do we draw the line between where the FTC wants to regulate it or where do we want to have consumer education? Because I think consumer education may be a little more important given that you know, you're limiting the businesses and what they can do with the information. But why not just educate the consumer and let them know what's going on? In the, in the meantime, uh, disclosure is huge with the FTC. And not just have the information out there. And you're right, those privacy disclosures are too long, too legalese. Everybody's anxious to get onto their content rather than to read those, those dialogues. And so part of the research that has been on the academic side of the conferences that I've been seeing where FTC people show up is trying to find a way to better present the key information to inform the consumer in a digestible, comprehensible form, whether it be risk information on drugs or um, making sure you understand exactly how your data is going to be used. And so the FTC continues to hold industry accountable. They are not so much seeing that um, it's all the consumer's responsibility. It is our responsibility as marketing professionals, and in my field in advertising, I'm a communications expert. I ought to be able to give, in theory, disclosure information in a comprehensible form where they can notice it, uh, perceive it, comprehend it. And, and then if I do it that way, then all of a sudden then the consumer can be educated. But the FTC is really holding us to the fire and watching how we're doing on self-reg. And the advertising um, option icon I just showed, they think that has potential because that brings out the tracking information and puts it on the forefront. It does not bury it in the privacy policy, which is where it used to be buried. And so the FTC has been favorable at the outset of what um, the IIB and some other um, industry associations are doing. But you do raise a really important point. I think we all feel it as consumers. Like, okay, they've checked off their, you know, disclosure box, but it's impenetrably bureaucratic. No one gets past the first. You know, you're trying to get through it as quick as possible. And, you know, every once in a while they'll have something where you have to scroll down to the end before you can say, I agree. But it, it does beg the question, like, how do you get it across the consumer. Like, I'm surprised. I'm shocked and surprised that companies haven't had a contest with consumers. So like, who can best communicate our impenetrably bureaucratic, you know, fine print? You know, I mean, we've had a million contests for, like, cool Super Bowl ads or this and that, but why? Maybe we need, maybe we need to look to consumers to kind of help us to get the point across. And I do think companies have an obligation to figure that out. I don't think just throwing fine print is sufficient. We've got to, you know, crack the code. And I do think, you know, when, when the FTC sees um, token efforts where, you know, companies are hiding behind, you know, insincere fine print, they're like, you know what, we're going to have to step in and clamp down a little bit more. So, you know, we can meet at a happy place in the middle if we really figure out how to get that information across, but it's not going to happen uh, to your comment about bringing consumers in, that icon was actually developed by creatives. They, how, let's communicate. I know. Let's hire an ad agency to develop this and pretest. Whereas before, the lawyers were involved. So they were saying, you know, yeah. you know, let's just get the lawyers out of the system and, and talk to consumers. 
I, I, I mean, it's a great question. I have no idea. I mean, I think education, I think that's the way to go. But as a, if you are a business owner or work in a marketing department or work in an advertising department or work in a PR department, that's not your main job. You know, I'm, I'm here to make money for my client. So, or they're thinking I'm here to make money for my client. And then on the flip side, does the consumer, I mean, as they talked about before, I don't think the consumer cares until we hear about it in the news that Facebook owns all your content. And you're like, oh, no, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. But we're using these things on a daily basis. My sister, this is going to date me, my sister got a beeper whenever, she, like, I was in high school, right? And my parents were like, well, do you want one, too? I was like, are you kidding me? That's an electronic leash. You Then now, if I don't call you whenever you beep, you know, then I'm in trouble. Well, we have these electronic leashes that we carry around in our pockets all the time, but we never even think about it. Even if I'm not checking into Foursquare or Gowalla, somebody knows where I am, you know, and I'm not saying it's big brother government, but it could be big brother government or who knows. So I think people have to care enough on the consumer side, but I think it's going to take companies that are already trusted and respected to start the education process. Which I think to me that's a key point. If you take this thing back up and that goes into a company building a brand that people trust and that they know that they can continue to trust. And that goes beyond just social media activity. That's just that's how a business does business every day. And if they can build that trust with consumers, then consumers shouldn't have to question them. But if they do have to question them, one thing that I think is fabulous is the fact that when companies do do bad things, such as the companies that have put programs out there so that pe people can go online and write positive reviews. Lo and behold, many times when companies hide the truth, people out there find the truth and companies become exposed. I'm thinking about Belkin a few years ago. Got caught for, putting, for paying someone to put fake reviews up online. Lo and behold, they got found out. Anytime you go out and you go online to buy a book, look at the reviews. And many times you can clearly see who is actually pals with the person who penned the book. Because you can see all these five-star reviews. And actually, that's one thing that I think is fascinating. Reviews online are mostly positive. I believe out of a five-star ranking, they're like, they come out to be four stars for everything, for all reviews online, which goes back to a comment that was talked about back over there, was the fact that there was a lot of positive word of mouth that goes out there. Uh, but in a way, it is up to consumers to regulate ourselves to a certain extent, but I think we need to at least be knowledgeable about what to look for, and that's where I think some of the groups out there, consumer groups and potentially some of the government type groups can help us to pinpoint places where we should have our tickles up and go, wait a minute, I should start questioning this before I click yes. Great, thanks. Got a question over here? Hi, my name is John Sullivan. Um, I'm an international business and marketing double major here at Baylor. Um, thank you all for coming out today. Again, uh, we appreciate that. I had a question as to, as generations become more familiar with being online and being tracked by companies and websites, do you think that the ratio of online to offline word of mouth communication, will that change and will people become more comfortable with being tracked online? Well, let me try to, let me, let me track, let me tackle the ratio thing. I actually disagree with that 90-10 been using that for the last 10 years, and it's just statistically impossible given the amount of, uh, of kind of consumer expression that's exploded on all these platforms like Facebook. I do agree it's probably 
offline dominant in terms of the total amount of word of mouth, but I just think that ratio, um, you know, as Twitter, Facebook, all these menus unfold, that percentage is just going to increase. Um, so that was what, who wants to tackle the second part of the question? <laughs> that was my, uh, I must challenge the numbers. <laughs> so the second part of the what question. Oh, we already sat down. Was related to our cu our customers going to get more used to? Yeah. Oh, uh, I think in a world where everything is held constant online, there's a level of comfort. But to my earlier point, I mean, when Facebook popped up and it just seems like it's kind of exploded on the scene in the last couple of years, um, you know, it just introduced a whole other set of issues. So it's hard to say if consumers will ever get comfortable in a world of, you know, radically dynamic change. So, um, you know, but it kind of begins with you. I know when, I, I know to me, I am very cautious about me sharing things on Twitter, me sharing my life on Facebook. I'm very, very cautious. I, I don't like to be public about it, but I do know you, your age, and teens are very comfortable being public about their life. And to me, it begins with you, because you're gonna be the leaders tomorrow. You're gonna to be setting strategies tomorrow. And when I'm, when I'm, when I'm probably 60, you're my age. Uh, I'm gonna be looking back and thinking, this is an interesting world we live in, and you led us there, and it is because you today you're shaped by all of this online activity. Me, I was, you know, shaped by Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, with dice. <laughs> and, and, and when you sit there and go with all these games that you find online, if my parents knew some of the role-playing dice games that I was playing, they would probably go, wait a minute, what's going on here? But in a way, it's the same sort of deal of what's happening now is what happened then, it's just, Today, those activities are broadcast out there within your social circle, which is then broadcasted out by someone else, by, by someone else. Just that sheer act of tagging photos scares me. I hate when someone tags me. And, 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 I, want to, and I go in there many times and I try to untag myself because, frankly, I want to be the person choosing to share a picture of online. But again, it goes back to you guys to the point where you, to an extent, businesses are going to look very different 20 years from now because of you. John Moore did not play Dungeons and Dragons while he was a Baylor student. Thank you. <laughs> not at Baylor. No, but no, but but when I was, I, I did do some, I had a couple of 12-sided 12, 12 die. Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, how many how many folks here are business majors? I know we invited more, but is it uh, most of the crowd here? Okay, so you're looking out at some uh, future business leaders, and you were also saying, John, uh, you know, it's as consumers they're going to shape it, uh, this environment. What uh, what advice do you have to offer them about they're going to need to wrestle with as, as business leaders in this area? Is there some particular hot buttons, a particular issue they need to really get sorted out to bring to the table when they're out there? Um. My advice is to question things. If, because you no doubt are going to be put, put in a position to where you don't believe an activity a company is doing or something you're just not comfortable with, raise your hand. 
and say, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Uh, that's something there that I know that's one of the roles that I played a, a lot of is the deal that I would counter what was talked about. But you have to pick and choose your spots. But again, have the courage to question something you don't believe is right and have a conversation about it. But again, that takes courage and I'm going to say find a way to have that because that will help you make and help your businesses make better decisions. So, um, so how many of you want to start your own company? Someone? I mean, to those of you that want to do that, um, think about this space. I, I actually think there's a massive amount of opportunity here. It doesn't require big companies to solve this issue. I think the greatest amount of innovation is coming from small startups. I think in this particular area, even you know the garage shop um, applications. But you know where there's fuzziness, where there's um, blurriness, where there's consumer confusion, there's also you know great great opportunities. I started my first company in 2000 because I felt like you know no one was helping consumers to. To the, to the to companies. Even the BBB wasn't doing a good enough job. And I said, you know what, I'm going to leverage social media to figure that out and create a new trust model. And you know what? We're still in the second inning of that level of innovation. You think about all the apps that have popped up out of nowhere in the last few months. And those are all people like you and me that are kind of thinking, you know, no one's cracked the code on how to service the consumer in such and such a way. And maybe there's whole bunch of new business models where we take the data and really use it in a very positive way. We put it back in the hands of the consumer. Um, but that's that, that would be my, you know, look at this as an opportunity for your next, you know, business venture. Trust me, there's actually a lot of money that is looking for initiative like this. Um, and now's a good time to put it on your radar. Anybody else? So, you know, these are... Business opportunities, is there a space there where um, the way that a business approaches uh, these opportunities or approaches the market in terms of how they uh, demonstrate their ethics is going to make them more competitive, less competitive? What are some of the ethical issues that these folks are going to you know, face when they go out there and, and try to be uh, profitable and the more, you know, establish a competitive advantage as an organization? Is there an ethical issue that's part of that, you think? Yeah, definitely. I think there is a uh, there's a component of that. And I think whenever I think all companies and this is a cliche term now, but the, the whole idea of being more people centric. There is a philosopher's name is Karl Popper, and he said you can divide the world into two things: clocks and clouds. And clocks are the things that we know how they how they work, okay. all right? And they are very predictable, and and we can put them out there, and we know how people are going to use them, or we know what their purpose is. But the clouds of the world are people. We don't know how they're going to react to things, right? And we don't know what someone, what someone might think is unethical another person might not have a problem with, right? And so I think more and more, the thing that I've had the most, that's been the most eye-opening with the companies that I've worked in is that we have someone who's almost an anthropologist, if you will, that they study how people behave and how they react, okay? And not, that's not to make us figure out how far up to the line we can go without being unethical. That's just saying, how, how, are, how might people react to something when it comes to ethics? And if we put this out there, is there a chance they're going to fillet us for it? <laughs> or is it something to where they might take it and run with it and do something else with it? Does that, does that uh -huh. make sense? Uh -huh. <laughs> they did McRib. It's, 
It's very, very tough. This whole question of profits and doing it right. Um, one of the things is so much easier is if you are a privately held company, you get to measure what success is. Mm -hmm. And you not hold it to the shareholders. If you are a public company, shareholders demand growth. Every quarter you must grow. And businesses will sometimes go to extreme lengths to grow to show Wall Street that they are still a growing company and a viable stock, one that is deserving of attention and money. So that's a piece that's tough out there, but privately held businesses have it a little bit easier. But it does go to the point that you're going to attract a certain customer if indeed you make decisions based upon values more than based upon profit. You might not be the most successful company, but you're going to be making a company that makes a difference. I think that is the question that's out there. Are you wanting to make purpose in life or are you wanting to make money in life? Are you wanting to make a to make a contribution in making the world a better place to live in or are you wanting to make a contribution in just fueling some of the profit machine that's out there? There's a balance to be made and I'm not out here saying profit is bad, no, but I do think though that sometimes it depends upon how you define success. If, if, if it's all about making money, you're going to be doing things that you're going to probably have to question at some point in your life. But if you have this goal to make a difference and you have faith that making that type of difference is going to be valuable, it will be in some way to you profitable. Okay. CJ? Hi, CJ Jackson. Actually, there's a little Twitter conversation that started from some of the tweets that we're sending out about the panel. And um, one of the comments was about the ESRB, the Electronic um, Software Ratings Board. Yes. And um, the fact that the Facebook game developers are kind of getting around that because they can't afford to. And maybe you you'd like to comment well, on that. Also, let me just say, I don't think that mic down there is even working. Not working real well. I think we're only catching what gets caught from the other mic, so. That's okay. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> okay, so my sense is that you all are wanting me to address what I know about why the games are not being rated on Facebook. My understanding is that ESRB, Electronic Software Rating Board, does not rate the games because the, the experience itself is based on user-generated content. Because these are social games, when you're interacting with others, they cannot control it. Therefore, they don't know what kind of language might be said or what the avatars might do in a role-playing game, for example, as opposed to a man EA makes a game and then they already, you know, you're, you're playing it on your you know, Xbox or your DS or whatever. They know what the content is that you're going to be interacting with, and therefore parents, when they're buying the product, know what that product is. So they are saying it is impossible for us to truly rate the game because it is dependent on other social interactions. That, that is my understanding and that's what's on their website as to why they do not rate. And the question we might be looking forward to is will parents still, if you're going to be a, a game developer, will parents still hold you accountable? What might be the implications of the content of, of the game and at, at what point might the government say you need to have some sort of guidance on there? So, 
Oh, maybe I'm off. No, okay, we're going. Okay, so uh, a couple of you have had a chance to think about this. We've we had the MBA case uh, competition going on, and, and uh, some of the panel members were in that. And there was a company in that uh, in that case talked about. It's been on the front page. Uh, Blue Cava or Cava, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but that Michael Dell put a lot of money into. It was, it was kind of a hot uh, story a couple weeks back. And their technology, um, as they're touting it, can trace back uh, all the way back to which devices are being used. Um, so if you're, put, if you're on your phone, if you're accessing something, that there can be a, a registry of all the um, different devices you've used and when you use them, what you accessed from them. Um, what, what ethical issues, when you thought about the case, uh, think are good for this audience to think about in terms of, like, does that present some ethical issues when you go back, you can go back that far? It, or, like, uh, Bouquet was actually saying it could be a great uh, fraud, you know, protection issue where you could track down people who are putting junk on the Internet. Um, what do you think? I want to take the children's side first because that, that is one of my areas of interest. And in, you know, my, my, my children are adults now, but certainly we've got some young, younger parents here. I'm concerned about the being able to track back to a device because a lot of those devices, whether it's a phone, an Android, or um, a gaming console, even a laptop, could be held by a child under 12 or a minor, the, the 12 to 17 range. And of course, you know, legally, there's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act that, that really protects the gathering of personal information from kids under 12. But there's still a lot of things that young people do, and they are minors. And I'm, I'm kind of concerned about how they're distinguishing about gathering data from devices owned by adults versus teens versus children who are legally protected. So I think that's something that we didn't delve in with the cases, but I think that's something that might be thought about. I think one of the most interesting things uh, that was discussed in, in one of the groups was, you know, ultimately who's res who's responsible. So I know everything about you. I know I know everything. There's no you, you have no secrets from me. All right, but I promise you, I will never do anything with that information. All right, except sell it to John. <laughs> and once I sell it to John, you know what? I'm done. I'm not responsible for it anymore. It's the whole, gu you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? So is it the gun producer that's responsible for the murder, or is it the person who, who held his hand? So where do we draw that line for who is responsible for it? So is Blue, Blue Kava responsible? And so a really interesting ethical discussion broke out to when are they no longer responsible for what people do with that information, and what are the things that they can put in place? Um, agreements, contracts, you know, you know, uh, doing uh, due diligence on their clients before they actually sell them the information, but where does that relationship begin and end? And I think that's something that really needs to be discussed a lot more, especially when you know every, well, a lot of things about a, one particular person. Mm -hmm. Any and thoughts? One thing that was talked about in, in our discussions that we heard was this opportunity for brands to work with some sort of company to better control what data is out there and how they are going to use it. And one thing that I think was talked about was this idea of for brands with indeed they are to use a company like, like a Blue Cava, which basically would house all of this data and would keep the data private except for some components to it that would then go back to companies 
that they then could learn more about their customers, but not know the customer's name or not know particulars there, that these brands that they would work with would have to sign a sort of terms and conditions agreement, and that they would have to be very particular about the brands that they wanted to work with, because, again, it goes back to the point of trust, and to me, I think that just goes back to this greater question of only doing businesses with brands that we respect and brands that we have confidence in that will do more good things than bad things. The challenge is that no business is perfect. No business will ever be perfect. Just like us as people, we're going to make mistakes. Businesses are the same way. We just hope that they're going to, to react in some way to, to admit making a mistake having fault, and then telling us what they're going to do so that it hopefully never happens again. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things about that case that's interesting is that, like, if you can find out which devices are, are actually spreading certain information, then you can block them. Like, they can no longer possibly then access your site. Or there, there seems to be some issues here where there's, there's going to be some... Um, Sticky issues about controlling access to information based on that software's strength. Uh, where most of what we're talking about so far today is that the, the freedom of access is, is actually something that's challenging. Um, and there might be some legal ways to control that are coming on board to control access to information. But this is actually a software that could block certain people and certain devices from uh, spreading information or accessing your information. So it's... It's interesting. You're not really familiar with it, Pete, but I don't know if you have a thought on it generally about this idea of control over how far you can go to identify, you know, uh, people who are putting stuff on the web or who's blogging or uh, who's... Well, I mean, there's, we're certainly in the business of monitoring, you know, online conversation in terms of what people are saying and, um, you know, kind of, I'd say, kind of anonymous characteristics. But to the, to the earlier point about... You know, I, I think there's um. I mean, does anybody here use Mint.com? What is it again? Mint. Mint.com. Mint. That's a yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's kind of what was the one you called? Blue Kava. So yeah, it's, it's very similar. I mean, it's just that it's focused on all your financial transactions, and it is a bit of a trust covenant because you're giving them all your passwords. Um, but they are you know, the value proposition is that they do kind of aggregate your complete financial story, which is an incredible benefit because at times it feels very schizophrenic when you've just got, you know, a CD here and you've got, you know, stocks here. But um, but it also raises some interesting questions. On one hand, it's very convenient, but I've noticed that they're starting to send ads to me and in, in, in the name of, like, solving problems. Mm -hmm. But at times it's kind of feeling like, okay, I've kind of, you know, really gone overboard in providing all this kind of privacy information. But you know, it may or may not be appropriate to have ads, unless they really absolutely kind of get it right. But um, but in theory, I'm in control of all that, but I do lose sight of what those controls are over time. So it really it really does take a lot of work on the part of the consumer to kind of make sure you know what you're getting into, because what looks like convenience on the front end, you know, could create some, you know, long-term liabilities. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I know um, <laughs> one thing that's keeping me awake at night is the fact that uh, when I, um, I responded to one of those emails about somebody who had a million dollars for me and if I'd give them my bank account number that I could get part of that? Oh, no. yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, what are, the, what are the issues about... Get the family money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
they contacted me, a trusted colleague in the U.S. So, uh, anyways, what are the things that are keeping you awake at night in this whole area of uh, social media, access to information, uh, the things that you uh, really are wrestling with? Um, what do you think? Open wide open there. I'm worried we're going to screw it up. I just think marketers have a track record for, um, you know, messing things up. I mean, I think we, uh, as John said so well, you know, this is a, um, you know, the word of mouth space is, it's kind of unprecedented, it's highly trusted, but there's a lot of congestion by marketers that are feeling this need to engage, and often under a lot of short-term pressure, um, and I'm sure, Spike, you probably feel that pressure, even at agencies where, you know, they want ROI yesterday and, you know, and yet you're trying to build organic word of mouth and, you know, there's just, you know, so I think, you know, this, this, this pressure to perform, you know, get the results has the risk of, has the real potential of leading to um, confusion in the marketplace, bad practices, governmental backlash, and ultimately an environment of, of kind of apprehension, fear, and anxiety, which in which case everyone loses. So that's what keeps me up at night. It's just that we're just gonna we're gonna lose sight of the prize and this precious treasure called you know the, the word of mouth space is gonna be lost. Um, what I find to be so challenging is that it has turned to be 24-7. Businesses are always on. Anytime a customer has an issue, they have a venue and venues to share it. Back in the day, it only had you could only call eight to five Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday. Now it's 24/7, and I think to me that's a huge challenge for companies that just aren't prepared to handle that, and it's a huge challenge for companies that aren't set up from a company culture in to want to listen to react to that. I think for us, too, one thing that I find actually challenging from a consumer perspective is how quick consumers are to tell companies they failed. I, I laugh so many times when I hear someone or see a tweet on Twitter talking about some company, epic fail. And I'm and, and going like, no business is perfect, you aren't perfect. What if I said so-and-so, epic fail because you were 10 minutes late for lunch? It's not an epic fail, it's just, what is this perfect? But on that end though, being 24-7, having people give us this real-time type of feedback, it's an unbelievable opportunity for businesses to be better, to know what customers care about and to respond to that. So while I kind of lament it, I enjoy it just because there, there are, th are ways out there that businesses can learn what truly matters to customers and because they learn that, they can hopefully respond to better surpass what a customer expects out of a business. Dude, you haven't been reading the tweets from everybody here. John Moore, fail, fail, fail. <laughs> Epic fail. Epic fail. Grand autopsy, hashtag fail. <laughs> Um, first of all, I sleep like a baby at night. Oh, thanks. Second of all, <laughs> what concerns me though, especially started sending you scripts. That's right. I, I got that was puts me to sleep. So, uh, <laughs> but what concerns me, especially right now, especially with social media, is that a lot of uh, clients and potential clients they want to jump in without really knowing what's going on. We want some of that social media, and even if some one of their competitors does something that's questionable when it comes to ethics, 
they see that it generates a lot of sales, so we want to do that too, without that education. The other thing that really concerns me is this huge focus on numbers, um, as far as number of followers on Twitter, number of likes on Facebook, you know, and when, even without understanding really what that, what's that all about, you know, it's fascinating to me that to complain about a company on Facebook, you have to go like it first, <laughs> right? That screwed up. <laughs> you, you thought about that? So you have to go like somebody before you trash them. But now they got a like, so that marketer can go to their boss and go, we have half a million likes. No, everyone's posting crappy things about us. But <laughs> so there's a huge focus right now on that, and, and and so I think again, social media is a shiny object in the room, um, and we have to realize these guys are going to kill me for saying this that it's a tool, <laughs> all right? That it's just a set of tools. Word of mouth is the grandpapa, all right? And it's been around forever. Word of mouth marketing is newer, but social media now is just a set of tools. And I think um, clients, our clients, need to remember that these are tools that we that are at our disposal but there are certain ways we can use them that can be very ethical and sometimes don't generate sales quickly over the short term because there is so much pressure, not only by marketers to perform, but by CMOs of companies because the average tenure now of a, of a CMO is like, what? Half a month. Yeah, yeah, half a month, like 16 months. And so they're under tremendous pressure to produce sales. Mm-hmm. And organic word of mouth takes longer, but is more effective in the long run. So. There's several things, but I think the temptation to use something unethically to make a quick buck and hope nobody sees it is growing. Mm-hmm. Maria? I guess I have two things. Uh, usually what I am thinking about is what relates to my classes. How can I use what is current and cutting edge where I don't know the answer, which I really appreciated the case that you came up with because like it was like a month old. A lot of stuff happened in October, by the way, um, when I look at some of the dates of these things. And part of what we are finding out with the online social gaming, my students went out and everybody, like 45 students, had to interview someone who's social gamed following my interview guide. And even though I had seen it in headlines on news stories before, the word addiction tied to gaming. Now, I thought about addiction and gaming when you're a hardcore gamer, like you black ops people, including some of the guys who missed my class on Tuesday because they were in line at the mall at midnight. Just saying. But when we did the interviews about people playing Farmville with those, you know, creepy little delight characters and find that people were getting into it and hating to admit it and were not going to class or they which you know, or were sitting in class and playing with us, you know. But there was a lot of procrastination. There was hours and hours and hours, you know, playing and they, the people that we were interviewing were using the word addiction. Now, that sounds bad, and somebody who does public policy work can hear the word addiction, and that's not good. But then I'm reading on the marketing side that people are going social gaming. Once they get in there, they will play for 35, 45 minutes. You can't get them to attend to a commercial for 35, 45 minutes and actively engage with it. So what a perfect environment where there's all this interactivity, involvement, and you can have chatter going on among people to go ahead and have a branded environment, a branded game, you know, product placement, it's, it's brilliant. As a marketer, I'm going, that's brilliant. But then on, on the other side, I, I don't know what to do when people say the word addiction. But you can have addiction a type, you know, to, you can be addicted to shopping, right? So I'm not sure how accountable we as marketers are if, if people do not have their own sense of control. So that's kind of like a, ooh, that's kind of a curious, you know, dichotomy going on there. I think the other thing that I ponder over, and because I also do work in disclosures in general, 
and you look at the surveys about what people want, uh, corporate social responsibility, people want honest, truthful companies. What are we supposed to do in disclosures and our privacy policy and about our truth and lending acts, about you know the actual carat weight of the jewelry and all the mandated uh, disclosures? People are wanting truth. People are wanting truth. Okay, that sounds simple. Just tell the truth. Truthful, non-misleading advertising and you should be fine. Full disclosure and you should be fine. You try to get five people in the room and all decide on what is truth these days? What is truth? And we can have a philosophical, even spiritual conversation about that. And I would suggest that you have it with yourself because you're going to go into the business world and you cannot separate, as we've already seen, you cannot separate who you are as a person. For those of you who name the name of Christ, you cannot separate who you are as a believer from how you are going to perform in your profession. And so, you know, how much truth do you tell? Do you tell all that you know? If you withhold some of the truth that the consumer needs in order to make the decision, have you really been truthful? When do you tell the truth? At what point in the, in the purchase decision do they have to, to know information? I participated a, a couple of years ago in FTC negative options, which is that's once you sign up, you have to unsign or every month they bill your credit card. That's what a negative options is. And, and, and um, part of the problem is a lot of times people sign up for those programs not realizing what the full commitment or how often, you know, the extra purchase and stuff so it's not that the disclosure isn't there and it's not truthful, but it's not at the point where the decision is being made. So if you don't give it to me at the right time, if you don't give me enough, um, is it user-friendly truth? I was thinking this morning, when you're up at 4 in the morning and you're having your quiet time, God says some really interesting things, and I was thinking, who better than Christ got truth down to an understandable level with his parables? And surely we can, can try to get truth in comprehensible forms. And I, th I think if, if I had to say from a philosophical, big-picture standpoint, especially as I'm talking to, hopefully, future ethical Christian business leaders, it would be to personally decide what is truth, where it's coming from, and to have that be throughout all of your life. So I will get off my soapbox okay. now. Good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, and we're heading towards the finish line. So if you're getting a little itchy, I, I appreciate you hanging in here. It's been really interesting. But I've got one more uh, question. Now, normally when we talk about ethics, you know, it's, um, it seems like it's uh, around like staying out of trouble and, and things that you shouldn't do and, uh, and, and those kinds of conversations. But here at the business school, we've tried to make that conversation a little more holistic and we've said, well, ethics is also trying to figure out how, what you can do that's good and virtuous and right. Uh, that, that should be part of the ethics discussion. So, I'm heading toward my question here, and, and you can think about it while I see if we can flag our MBAs, because they're going to come in here and hear the end of this, I think, and then we're going to give some awards and, and you'll be done. But here's the question. So when you think about social media, some of the examples you've given, um, where do you see the greatest potential for doing good with social media? And maybe some examples, if you do have an example in mind of a company that is doing good, that's using that technology, the ability to connect with people and gain information and they're accomplishing good with that. So think on it for a second. I think some MBAs might come in, might be distracting, but what, how can these things, social media, accomplish good? Or are some examples of companies that have used it for the good? And good could be social good and profit. It doesn't have to be one or the other, I think. It could be an and. Well, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll echo something I said. I talked a lot about transparency in my... Um, 
in my earlier uh, remarks over lunch, and I just think there's, you know, transparency is, is allowing us to read into brands and to businesses that um, we could have never imagined before. Um, it's not just, you know, searching by price, but it's searching by, you know, the values of the company, um, how, you know, how disciplined they are around green, how well they treat their employees. Um, and I think there's some really good opportunities to, you know, leverage social or digital technologies to continue on that path to really, um, you know, inform increasingly more, you know, savvy um, shoppers to, you know, get that information more clearly. And it goes hand in hand with what I was saying earlier about this being a great time to uh, to start a digital business because I think there's a huge unmet need, um, you know, in those areas. But just ask yourself, like, boy, you know, what, you know, you know, what are the values I would like to see consumers bring into the shopping process, and then how can I um, drive clarity? You know, how can I drive a, a, a match? And I think that, that you know, the potential is enormous. I think areas like social search are going to become really big in 2000 and. Um, 11, this notion of like searching not just against the entire universe, but against the folks that you trust. You know, I want to search everything. I want to know what John and Spike and others are thinking about um, because I really trust them. I've been working. It's almost like the Wilma circle of buying. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see a lot of that. But there could be really great opportunities to kind of take some of these new enabling technologies and um, and um, help get people towards your version of the greater good. So, first of all, I think good is kind of like ethics. It's subjective, right? <laughs> What's good for me is might not be good for you. And I fundamentally believe that pro uh, companies and products and services exist for two reasons, or people buy them for two reasons. Solve my problem. I have a dirty toilet, so I will need to clean it, so I'm going to buy some toilet cleaner. But make me feel good about my purchase, too, all right? And so the companies, and I've worked with John on a few of these projects, is we, we try to reframe the conversation and say, it's, we work for a scissor company. Yes, I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing up scissors. We worked for a scissor company, and we knew that we could not go, move, go make people care about scissors, all right? But we found out, yeah, because you, you don't go on Twitter and go, the angle of the cut of this scissor is awesome. You know, you don't, you don't do that. But, okay. but we found out, but we figured out that uh, scrapbookers, anybody here a scrapbooker? Or knows a scrapbooker? Yeah, knows a scrapbooker. Hold on. $3 billion industry in the United States alone. And these people use this tool called a scissor and other things to create these beautiful pieces of art that they pass on from generation to generation. That's what they care about. So as a company, how can we connect those people that care about that and facilitate that conversation and in turn bring good into their lives because they're learning from each other. Um, I mean, some of them really can't wait to get on the, the site and you know, the next day and chat with people who share their passion. And we're a part of that conversation. The Scissor Company now is a part of that conversation, all right? So we no longer make it about us. We make it about what people love, and we're a part of that. We worked on uh, musical instruments. Uh, so it's not about selling a guitar. It's about putting a guitar in the hands of a kid who, when he plays his first chord, his eyes light up, and he says, I made music, you know? And now he's, he's unlocking something inside himself. Is that good? You know, for him, maybe it is. Maybe he's the next Jimi Hendrix. We don't know. But again, it's not about selling the guitar. It's about facilitating that conversation and that feeling of good. So reframe that conversation. When we were doing our interviews, pull that over a little bit. When we were doing our interviews on social gaming, and one of the things we we're looking at is how people would be responsive, possibly to the different ways we can monetize. And so one of it is, you know, using real money to buy things in your virtual world. And most people said, you know, why would I buy a 
virtual cup of Starbucks when I could rather spend the money on a real cup of Starbucks. But a few people said, but you know what? If when I bought something with real currency in my virtual world, it actually went to a cause I believed in, then I'd be willing to give money. And uh, Farmville had um, Haiti Relief that people could give to. And I believe that was sponsored by Zynga, the, the game developer. With, with, they did it themselves. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for nonprofits and even for-profits to use social gaming venue with all those people there. And especially, I'm talking to a group of young people, but social gaming, you know, there's a lot of middle-aged moms playing Farmville and other social games if you look at the demographics, especially across the, the different kinds of games. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there as a way to monetize as well as to um, do some, some good. And I think in companies, companies are... There's more and more companies popping up about, and they're all about good. Anybody here own a pair of Tom's shoes? Those are the ugliest things I've ever seen, except for Crocs. Crocs are uglier. But, but a lot of the reason why people buy them is because they send one off to third world country and a little kid gets a pair of shoes too. All right? So their whole model is based on good. Um, and then that message is accelerated through social media and connects like-minded people. So. And kind of how I would play into in this. Tom's is a small company. They are not nearly as big as Nike, let's just say. But the beautiful thing about social media is that small emerging companies like Tom Shoes can play on the same playing field as the largest companies because we're all using the same tools. And so I think the beautiful thing is that Tom Shoes Online can have a huge presence that they would never be able to have in the offline type of world. So in a way, small can look big online, but conversely, for a very large company, they can look small online, which is a good thing because by, by looking small online, it means they've made a personal connection to a customer. For example, UPS, the shipping company, they monitor the conversations about them online. Here's this global huge company that will respond to individual tweets or comments online. And the people that hear or see that UPS, this huge company, has responded to little old me, makes them feel special. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for small companies to carve out a niche and to look big online through social media. And it's also a wonderful opportunity for these huge companies to get smaller in a customer's minds through more individual attention. Great. All right, I'm going to invite our MBA teams in, and uh, and this might be a stalling question, but it, I'm going to offer it anyways. Um, so uh, you're going to have a chance to have your last kind of parting tweet to the audience, okay? So think about what might be your last um, kind of parting piece of advice for the audience, and uh, I'll see maybe... Marjorie, could you see if they would come in for me so I don't have to run all over there? Um, parting tweet, advice for these folks in terms of the area of social media ethics, maybe even something else. What do you think? My parting tweet would kind of go back to something that I uh, said is the fact of I'm trying to gauge whether something is right or wrong. If you begin to question if you think it's right, then it's probably wrong. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> Could you make a movie or a script out of that, Spike? No. <laughs> I think you need to have 
your own value system and your own definition of truth personally decided before the hard decisions come, and then the hard decisions are not that hard. All right. Create the answer. I think I think there's solutions you can bring to the table that can um, help us resolve a lot of these issues. We need you. Great. Okay. All right. Thank you very much to the panel.